0: Back in April, I spoke and delivered a lesson on Ezekiel chapter 22 entitled, I Searched for a Man, and it was based upon a series of study lessons that we had done at Connersville years before, Um, and as I pointed out then, I was going to only take four of the points of the chapter, so I thought, well, why not have I Searched for a Man part two? So tonight is Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 30 and 31, I searched for a man, part two. So in Ezekiel 22 and verse 30, we read this, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Thus, I have poured out my indignation on them, I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Now, Ezekiel chapter 22 is a pivotal chapter for not only the book of Ezekiel, but also for Jeremiah. As you may know, Jeremiah, during the time of the beginnings of the, well, during all of the captivity, Jeremiah was in Jerusalem and Ezekiel was in Babylon. But the two prophets were uh, prophesying at the same time. They were coexistent with one another. Ezekiel chapter 22 is written, chapter 22, the entire book covers a much longer period of time, but chapter 22 is written during the late 7th century BC with Babylon as the world power and Nebuchadnezzar, the famous Nebuchadnezzar of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2 is the ruler, the head of gold of the greatest empire of the world, Babylon. Daniel is already there. Daniel is already there prophesying to Nebuchadnezzar, serving in his court. Judah is going to be invaded. It has already been invaded and is paying tribute, but it is going to reject that tribute Try to turn to Egypt for help. Uh, Jeremiah tells them, don't do that. They do it anyway. And so they are going to be invaded. Jerusalem is going to be captured. And the temple is going to be burned, destroyed, Solomon's temple, within the next 10 years. A summary of this time period is written by the writer of Second Chronicles in chapter 36 and verse 14. When he says, all the officials of the priests... And the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. Up until chapter twenty-two, we read Ezekiel talking about having hope that maybe God will relent. You know, the book of Isaiah talks about God relenting uh, toward uh, toward Nineveh and Assyria, and the entire prophet Jonah is written about that event and so the prophets held out hope that if the people would repent that God would relent concerning the calamity that he had prophesied he would bring upon them alas they did not repent they did not repent and this chapter is pivotal because it shows that there is no body left there's no one left he's looking for anyone that will stand in the gap, that will do what's right, and he finds no one. So in the previous lesson, we talked about four characteristics of manhood. You know, we have a crisis in manhood going on in our culture today. All the way back when I did this series 10 or more years ago as a a classroom series, articles were then being written about where are all the men in some of the more liberal publications like The Atlantic. I, I, in fact, I did, the, I did the lesson series because of that article that was in The Atlantic. And so we have a crisis of manhood. Men are not being what they ought to be, and we're starting to see it. We're starting to see it very clearly in our society, in the American culture. And so in this chapter... We talked about, last time, we talked about four characteristics of what God expects in men. One is courage. He expects men to be courageous and strong and to fill the gap, to stand in the gap when there is danger and the enemy is lurking. He also expects men to love and respect that which is holy, that which is sacred. There are sacred things and God expects men to respect those sacred things. He expects men to love and respect life. And we pointed out that America has committed more murderous abortions since 1973 than the most heinous of murderers, mass murderers in all of history, including Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. Over 63 million people have been murdered at the hands of not the world, The United States of America since 1973 and the legalizing of abortion in Roe v. Wade. God also expects men to understand what is theirs and what is not theirs. Respect for what they have and respect for what they don't have. Tonight, I want to talk about four additional elements of Ezekiel chapter 22 that God expects in manhood. He expects us to be honest and fair in our dealings with other people, especially our business dealings. He expects us to be sexually pure. He expects us to honor our parents, our father, and our mother. And he expects us to exercise power with great humility. Regarding honest and fair dealings, Ezekiel said this in verses 12. And 13 of the chapter, in you, they have taken bribes to shed blood. You have taken interest and profits and you have injured your neighbors for gain by oppression. And you have forgotten me, declares the Lord God. Behold, then I smite my hand at your dishonest gain, which you have acquired and at the bloodshed, which is among you. You know, the Bible teaches us, and I learned this a long time ago, and I think anybody that's been in business for any length of time realizes that when you deal with one another in business, it has to be win-win, not win-lose. If all you are seeking is to gain an advantage of somebody else, you may, you may be successful at that once or twice. You may even cheat somebody a few times. But it's not going to be a successful career. You're not going to have ultimate success out of that. You're going to have to find ways to win for your business associates and your customers to win so that you can win also. Now, there are so many scriptures we could look at, but in Luke chapter 16, when Jesus tells us the parable of the steward, he says, we, we, we know that the steward was being called into account, if you remember the story. He said, you're wasting your master's possessions, and you're going to have to give an account of what you've been doing. And he quickly called in the creditors, and he said, how much do you owe? And he said, write the bill for this amount. He still had that authority to do it. And so he gave them discounts or a factor of what they actually owed. And the master then, when he learns of this, it says here, picking up in verse 8, praised the unrighteous steward, the unrighteous manager, because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful in much. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous in much. Of course, the the, the little thing is this world's goods. And the much that he is talking about is the eternal wealth that awaits us all. Therefore, if you have not been faithful to the use which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So why does Jesus say that this man was, was, why was he praised? Why did Jesus praise this? The the heading, and no doubt the paragraph heading in many of your Bibles say the unrighteous steward. So he's unrighteous. He's bad. (laughs) He's bad, Rick. Why did he get praised? Well, first of all, he was shrewd. He was wise. And what was he wise at? he was wise at giving his customers, his master's customers, a better deal, a discount by paying their bill immediately. Don't you like to get discounts? Of course we do. And the master's customers enjoyed that as well. So the master got a deal also. He got all of his cash flow increased. All of his cash came in immediately so that he could not only pay his bills, but then he could reinvest that cash in new projects. And even though the unrighteous steward was deficient in the past, he was unrighteous. He He was not doing what was right, but he straightened up and corrected that, and then he acted faithfully. And so if we are going to be men, as God expects us to be men, we're going to conduct ourselves in our businesses and in our affairs, honestly, and in a fair way, in a win-win situation. But God expects us to be sexually pure as well. In Ezekiel 22 and verse 11, Ezekiel says, one has committed abomination with his neighbor's wife. And another has lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law. And another in you has humbled his sister, his father's daughter. Men, real men of God, are to be sexually pure. They're to be sexually straight. This is the way the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Well, you know, a lot of people don't know anymore what it means to be sexually pure, what it means to be sexually right. And a lot of people don't even know what men are anymore, do they? We're having a whole lot of confusion in this country about just what are men. In fact, we had a Supreme Court nominee who unbelievably didn't know what a woman was. She said, I can't tell you what a woman is. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But that's not what this lesson's about. This lesson is about what is a man? What does God expect of men? And what does God expect of godly men? And he expects us to be sexually pure. Now, here's one interesting thing about the Old Testament. A lot of people ask the question, well, Ralph, why do we have the Old Testament? You know, it's not authoritative anymore. It's not binding on us. But why do we have it still here? Why has the Old Testament been preserved for us? One reason, there are many reasons, but one reason is, is it helps define words. It helps define things for us now. For example, nowhere that I know of in the New Testament is the phrase uh, is the phrase sexual purity or sexual immorality defined. Now we have the Greek word, or we have the English word fornication, the Greek word porneia, and we can look up what that means. And, it'll, and usually, when you look it up in dictionaries, Bible dictionaries, it's simply going to say sexual immorality. Well, to a lot of people, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that are not immoral in certain people's minds. And so when Jesus condemned fornication in Matthew chapter 19, what did he mean? What was he talking about? Here's what he was talking about. Luke 18, the entire chapter, Leviticus 18, the entire chapter of Leviticus 18 defines sexual immorality. Here's one of those verses in verse 3. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you live, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. And so he, he's saying, Moses is saying, you know, the, the sexual practices of the Canaanites and the sexual practices of the Egyptians, you are not to do them. And one of those things among many, many in Leviticus 18 is you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Now there's a whole lot of people in the world who are confused about that. There's even people in the church that are getting confused about that. They don't know what the word means. They don't know what sexual immorality is. Sexual immorality involves, not limited to, but it involves homosexual conduct homosexual conduct is an abomination. It was an abomination to the Lord in Leviticus chapter 18, but it was also an abomination to the Lord in Matthew 19 and 1 Thessalonians 4, and it is an abomination today. Now look, we don't have to go through every single sexual perversity to know what's true and right. And what's true and right is simply this. That God expects you to have no sexual activity other than with your spouse after, not before, after you have committed to one another for a lifetime of purity. A lifetime as husband and wife as it was in the beginning, as Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 19. Anything beyond that, anything, anything beyond that, anything before that, anything after that, anything above that, anything below that is sexual immorality. And that's what, Le- that's what Leviticus 18 teaches, as well as other Old Testament verses that we don't have the time to get into tonight. But that's what sexual immorality is. And God's men, God's men are not that way. God's men are sexually pure. But God expects men to honor their father and their mother. He said this in Ezekiel 22 and verse 7. They have treated father and mother lightly within you. In other words, doesn't mean that much to them. Doesn't mean... How's how's mom and dad getting along? Oh, I don't know. I mean, haven't checked in on them for about uh, a year or two. They've treated them lightly. In other words, they don't think about them at all. They're not concerned about their welfare. In you, they have uncovered their father's nakedness. Now, Jesus also encountered these light uh, attitudes, these uh, attitudes, <laughs> these sinful attitudes. In his day toward father and mother, when he confronted the Pharisees in Matthew 15, they had come to Jesus asking him why he didn't observe certain traditions. And Jesus then responded to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? In other words, your tradition, Pharisee, does not supersede the will of God, the scripture of God, the word of God. But that's what you're doing. For God said, honor father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. Which meant the Pharisees and Sadducees and the ruling class. He is not to honor his father or his mother. By this, you invalidate the word of God. For the sake of tradition, your tradition, you hypocrites. Now, what is this about? The Pharisees were invalidating the word of God because they said, if you have pledged a certain amount of your money to the temple or to the church or to the work of God, then you're exempt from that commandment to honor your father and mother. And Jesus said, no, you're not. You're not exempt at all. Now, anytime we read about honoring our parents in the Old or the New Testament, it almost always, not always, not exclusively always, but it almost always involves money, monetary support, the care that is needing to be given to them. Now, this phrase is not really, it's not about where your mother and father are going to get the care that they need. You know, I was growing up as I was growing up and, and it, it, it's interesting how attitudes about the scripture do sometimes shift with the culture, right? And I remember as I was growing up, nursing homes had a bad, had a bad reputation, And if someone had to go to the nursing home, wow, I mean, boy, they must be really bad off because those places are really dangerous and you wouldn't want to go there. And there are some that are that way, but most are not. I've been in a lot of nursing homes and Michael's been in a lot of nursing homes. He's been a lot of nursing homes around here. Let me tell you what, some of these nursing homes now are five-star accommodations. <laughs> they are not like nursing homes were back in the 50s and 60s and early 70s, where nursing, home, nursing homes got a bad rap. So, look, I can't spend a whole lot of time on this, but let me just say this. If you live long enough, you're going to be in a nursing home. If you live long enough, you're going to be in a nursing home. Why? Because your children do not, unless they are registered nurses and have all the equipment necessary, uh, don't have the equipment, the know-how, and the wherewithal to physically care for you. Now, my mother and father were able to live in their home 95% of their living life. But when my mother turned 87 years old, she couldn't even get into the, She couldn't get in the in the in the doorway of our of her house anymore. She couldn't get in. She couldn't take the step that was needed to walk in the door. And my father had to call 911 just for them to come out and get her into the house. Now my father could not lift my mother. My no one person could lift my mother. And so when she couldn't get into the house, and this happened three times, then we said, Dad, we've got to go to the nursing home. And we had already been pre-approved, and we went to a beautiful facility in Brownsburg and a facility that we had been in and that we were helping to service as our in our in our drugstore operations. And we knew, and we knew many of, and we knew some of the people, the administrators that worked there. So it was a wonderful f- facility and my mother and father did die in that, in that, or my father died in that facility and my mother got ill uh, after less than a year in that facility. So they did not spend a lot of time in the nursing home, but they did get good care. You know, a lot of people that go into the nursing homes, I'm, I'm just going to say this and then I'll move on from this idea. You know, a lot of people in the nursing homes live a lot longer than they were expected to live when they went in. I mean, I've had people, I've had people, uh, mothers and fathers of friends that go into the nursing home and they're on death's door. They're not expected to live very long. And then they live for 10 more years. (laughs) Do you know why that is? Because they start getting good care. That's why. They They start getting taken care of. They start getting fed properly and routinely. They start making sure their medicines are taken regularly. And so that's why that happens sometimes. So the question is not about, not when Jesus said it, and not when it was talked about in the Old Testament. It was not about where they're going to get their care. It's going to be about if they get their care. And that's what was happening in Matthew chapter 15. Parents were being neglected by their children because the children just did not want to make the monetary sacrifice that was going to be required To take care of mom and dad. And that's what Matthew 15 is about. And that's what Ezekiel 22 is talking about. They didn't care about their moms and dads. They didn't care what is happening to them. They were more interested in their (coughs) personal possessions and greedy for this world's goods. Finally, Ezekiel says, God's men will exercise power humbly behold the rulers of Israel each according to his power have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood they have treated father and mother lightly within you the alien they have oppressed in your midst the fatherless and the widow they have wronged in you you know um there's a lot could be said about this I'm not going to spend very much time because I'm going to go ahead and wrap up but those who are in positions of power need to realize that that power has been given to them by God. And now I'm not only talking about rulers and kings and governors. I'm talking about employers. I'm talking about employers. You know, the Bible talks about this. It says, you know, you people, when you hire someone you're, and you owe them a wage, you owe them money. You are not to say to them, oh, come back tomorrow and I'll pay you. Oh, no, no. If payday is today, you pay. You pay now. You pay what you said you would pay to that worker. And you know, we have shameful, we we have had shameful situations in this country right in my hometown of Connersville where companies that promised certain retirement benefits to their employees were taken away from them because they found a loophole in the bankruptcy law so they could basically pay them a fraction, a fraction of what they would otherwise have been liable to pay their retirees. Now I'm telling you that's shameful. I'm telling you that is shameful and that is sinful. It is absolutely sinful when employers do that to their employees. It's wrong. It's shameful, and Ezekiel condemns it. God condemns it. And this is the positive side of it, and in Psalm 72 in verses one through four, "Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son." A psalm of Solomon, by the way, May he judge your people with righteousness, and you're afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Those who are in positions of power in our country, governors, mayors, governors, presidents, legislators, they are to punish the oppressors and see that righteousness is equally distributed to all men so that all people can flourish in a system of justice and righteousness. Well, that's it. I searched for a man. I don't know that I'm going to get a part three, so you may just have to remember this one. But God has certain standards for men, and he expects us to live by those standards. He expects us to be honest in our dealings. He expects us to honor our fathers and our mothers. He expects us to be sexually pure. He expects us to exercise the power we have over the others with great diligence, humility, justice, and righteousness.